Welcome to the Faculty Podcast, brought to you by Reformed Theological Seminary in Washington, D.C., part of a 50-plus year endeavor to train pastors and other church leaders in the ministry of the gospel in the United States and around the world. My name is Scott Redd. I'm the president here, and I teach Old Testament, and I'm joined by my colleagues and friends, Dr. Grace Utanto, professor of systematic theology, our professor of Old Testament, Dr. Peter Lee, and our professor of New Testament, Dr. Tommy Keene. And today we're going to continue on in our series on reading guides of books in the Bible. And today's one is a bit intimidating to me. It's the book of the Psalms, and it's intimidating because it really is such a huge topic. We could spend multiple episodes just working through the Psalms. They are a Bible unto themselves. And so we're going to approach this by starting, first of all, with what the Psalms are. Okay. I mean, the Hebrew name for them are the Tahalim, which means something like praise hymns. And uh, of course, there's more than just praise hymns in here, but it really is comprised of a large anthology with multiple authors, all writing in the same sort of macro genre, we might call it, or speech form type, which Mm -hmm. is this idea of poetry. Okay. And and even our listeners may say, well, poetry, we all know what poetry is, but if you actually think about it, what, what is poetry and what is poetry in the ancient world? How, How do we deal with the fact that our earliest literature uh, and I don't mean any writing for that matter, because our earliest writing is for the most part receipts, right? Our earliest writing is people saying, I gave him two fish and he gave me three bushels of barley back. That's, that's of course, because that's that's the most important thing human, humans have to deal with. But when they want to start getting artful, in other words, when they want to be aesthetic, when they want to attribute things to the sacred or to the beautiful, they start writing artfully. And um, the earliest writing that we have is... Uh, poetry. Um, and it's it seems to be actually for a long time, if you wanted to say something important in public, then you would do it through this form that is poetry or what we might call verse. So let's start off with that. Without this assumption uh, that we all know what poetry is, uh, let's start off with talking about what is poetry, what is, what is verse, Dr. Lee, and um, help get us started on how we can approach the Psalms as a book of poetry. What is poetry? That's a darn good question. Uh, and, and I'm just as intimidated as you are truthfully, Scott, about trying to tackle, uh, the book of Psalms. It's, it's massive. There's so many approaches, so many different issues, so many things to discuss. We really could do like a season just on the Psalms. In fact, the women's Bible study, I think, did a thing and, you know, was just selective on a couple of Psalms. But mm-hmm. I, I guess the question you asked about what is poetry, um, maybe it begins by saying that it's not prose. And we have a <laughs> sense of, uh, you know, what prose is. You know, you read, and, and honestly, I think that there is a certain refined way we can define and distinguish poetry. Um and and I think to a certain degree, it's it's kind of intuitive. I mean, if you read First Samuel and you compare that to Psalm twenty three, they clearly are different. Uh, even if you couldn't exactly pinpoint precisely the difference between the two, you know it's two different kinds of literature. Mm-hmm. So whatever poetry is, you know it's not prose. And um, and uh, and I think that's at least a beginning helpful way of of describing it. Um, 
uh, poetry is is elegant. Uh, you know, some of the one of the distinguishing markers of poetry is uh, is a whole lot more images. Mm -hmm. uh, you do find some imagery in in uses of images. Uh, and you know, Tommy, that's a big interest of yours. I know mm -hmm. is, is talking about biblical images. Yeah, and, if you're trying to pass the buck, though. No, I actually I'm trying to hoard it for a little second. Okay. So if you give me a moment to explain a little okay, bit great, more, and then no, then I'll let you share about then. biblical imagery and and uh, and even the whole kind of neo-Calvinistic uh, interest of common grace. You know, the use of images is not limited just to the biblical writers. Mm. In fact, they actually tapped into uh, images broadly of the ancient world, the images of the Leviathan, uh, water imagery associated with chaos and death. That's not biblical per se. It's it's just the way the ancient world discussed. So you have a lot of images of God as a divine warrior battling the chaos uh elements of the waters, Athenes, the Leviathan, things like that. Um, imagery is it's much more saturated in poetry. That's definitely something that allows you to talk about certain themes repetitively, but you can cycle through different images that allows it to be fresh and new. So you can talk about death as a valley uh, that's dark and sinister, or you can talk about death as a sea that encompasses you, that surrounds you. You can talk about uh, death as like pestilence or death um, as like, uh, I think it's in Psalm 49, what a, a fantastic image of death as a shepherd, mm -hmm. an anti-shepherd that's leading you falsely in life. But these are all different ways of talking about death. It's death, but it's it's these different poetic means to, to describe it. Uh, so that's one of the distinguishing factors that you see in poetry, in the Psalms, in the in those poetic portions of um, the prophets. Um Job is powerfully rich in images. Um, another thing, interesting, uh, 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 interestingly uh, unique about poetry that distinguishes it from uh, from prose is just really short, terse mm -hmm. phrases, mm -hmm. and the way that they kind of you know you can take two or three short lines, and you know correspond them together. So you know, praise the Lord, O my soul, praise the Lord. Oh my spirit, or something like that. I'm, I'm just making that up. That isn't an actual line, That's but you can hear how. Well, thank you. Yes. <laughs> you know, I, I do study the Psalms, uh, but you can hear how they kind of mimic each other and kind of mirror each other. That kind of mirroring, you know, the term is parallelism. That seems to be very distinguishing of poetry as opposed to prose. And uh, and if you really think about it, that takes a bit of a kind of an artistic skill to be able to do that consistently line mm -hmm. from line to line to line. So parallelism is one of the big distinguishing markers that sets aside uh, poetry as poetic. Uh, you, the use of images is uh, another uh, tool that, that uh, at, at least a high concentration of images, is another aspect of uh, poetry that makes it poetic, distinct from prose. Uh, there is some discussions of meter, but I've always found meter to be very elusive in terms of Hebrew meter and what that is. And so uh, there might be something um, there, but uh, it's it's much more harder to uh, to uh, to uh, to work through. I, th I think that meter could be described, though, as a subcategory of the terseness, because what what, yeah. what is the thing that yeah. makes the line shortened? Because at the end of the day. Right, that's the main thing. There's a heightened use of imagery. There's a heightened use of diction, maybe old diction, um, in poetry. But at the end of the day, the thing—if you look at—if you read Judges four and then, which is prose, and then switch over to Judges five, which is poetry telling the same story now poetically, the very first thing you notice 
is this constrained line. You know, I mean, the, the unexciting way to describe poetry is that it's numerically regulated artful speech, right? And that's, of course, not very exciting. And people aren't going to say that, you know, that that's a good method for wooing uh, your spouse or speaking of the good, the true and the beautiful. But at the end of the day, that is kind of what it is. I mean, it's, it's, it's numerically regulated. Now what's, what's being regulated. That's the hard part. That's what you're getting at with meter. And, you know, some people say it's syllables. Some people say it's stress. Uh, our, our professor, Michael O'Connor argued that it was syntactic constituents. And interestingly, you know, Ugaritic scholars like Dennis Pardee and Akkadian scholars like John Hunegaard say, yeah, that actually kind of works for what's going on in Akkadian and Ugaritic poetry too. And so, um, that's kind of interesting, but it's also notably not, it's not tight. It's not precise. It really is positing kind of a range of how to understand the line, but there's something about succinctness. There's about being concise about using just the right word. And I would add one element to what you said there, Peter, about poetry, sort of a constitutive part of poetry. And there's something about phonology in poetry. There's something about the way things sound that, I think across world, across world languages and world poetry, there's something about uniting the ideas with the body to mm -hmm. say it in a way so that you have alliteration, you have consonants, you have rhyme, of course, in English poetry, you have maybe rhythm, like an obvious rhythm or meter. Um, but the ideas are now sort of conjoined with the sounds and the way the tongue moves within the mouth. And that has a couple of purposes. One of them is that it really does kind of evoke the whole of the person in the activity of poetry, or in this case in the Psalter in the, in the, in the activity of praise and worship or preaching. But it also has this other element of also just making it more memorable, mm -hmm. you know, and you can do this with, you know, good slogans for advertising campaigns or political campaigns. If they have, a good phonologically formed line, you just remember it longer, right? Think about when you're driving in the car and a song comes on and suddenly you just hear that first note of a song that you haven't heard in 30 years and suddenly all of the lyrics come right back into your head, right? And that's, that's the power of poetry to kind of bring the whole of the person in a way, right? Into the act of communicating things artfully. So poetry involves, right, rhyme, rhythm, alliteration, mirroring, and metering. I mean, all of these different ways of looking at the text and actually being affected by it. Do we miss that, though, when we're reading through an English translation? Because clearly the English is not going to convey the same sort of rhyming, the same sort of rhythm as the Hebrew. You're not going to get the kind of effect, right? So are we missing out on scripture here? Are we missing out on the intended effects of God, the perlocutionary effects? Yeah, great. It, I mean, I don't know. I mean, it's a really good question. You want to honor our English Bibles uh, and their usefulness, uh, and there are, and, and most definitely, even in the poems, uh, poetry sections of uh, Scripture. But, but yeah, there is something lost. I mean, you know, uh, there is, um, you know, as Scott mentioned, there is a certain um, sound rhythm or a phonology. You could actually see that in the so the parallelism is not just semantic; it could be syntactic and it could be phonologic at times. Uh, you miss that in a, in a in a translation. The there are certain vocabulary words in Hebrew that are distinctively poetic. In fact, they only occur in poetry. 
you know, how do you capture that kind of uh, literary aesthetic in translation? It, it, it's kind of hard. I mean, the best might be to find a, an English word equivalent that is just as poetic and use that in, in your translation, I guess, that, you know, something like that might be the best that uh, you can do. In, in fact, in times the parallelism is not, is not semantic, phonologic, or syntactic. It is kind of a, a semantic aesthetic. There's a word that means exactly the same thing semantically. One word is just a poetic word. Another is just a prosy word, but they're used in parallelism mm -hmm. with each other. So, you know, we translate that differently because we kind of have to. You can't say the word, you know, God is good and then God is good again. It just looks too repetitive. Mm -hmm. But in Hebrew, it, it looks different. You know, it's sort of a one's a prosy good. The other is a poetry good. Or, or I mean, that's sort of the best example that comes to mind. So, uh, yeah, there is something that, you know, to, to really understand the, the details of um, and to appreciate the poetry as, uh, as poetry, there is a certain aspect that, that we have to, you know, study it in, its, um, in the original language. I think that honors the Lord and how he revealed his word. He chose this medium um, and to appreciate the intricacies of this uh, tool of uh, divine revelation divine revelation, excuse me, it seems that uh, it's worthy of some level of scrutiny and study, yeah. Now, you always lose something in translation, which is why, you know, it's one of the reasons why here at the seminary we talk about the importance of pastors preaching and knowing the original text. You, you preach using the text that's in front of your congregation, but a pastor should be exegeting and understanding the text. And I actually, I even think you, you have always have to be careful about that. We hear jokes about pastors using the ancient languages in their sermons as kind of a way of showing off or something like that mm -hmm. or, or othering their congregation. Uh, however, I do think there's something to being aware of the poetic function and being able to talk about the poetic moves that a text is making. Hmm and the beauty of the text and you might be surprised it might it's going to take some work and practice um but you might be surprised that some of the uh the the more artistic people in your church who may otherwise feel quite ignored in sermons might mm -hmm. actually say oh wait a minute yeah that's right this 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 book this text is artfully composed and uh it, it speaks to the to the heart in that way you know, but no, if you, if it's, it's funny when you look at the Psalms and you open them up, we, we lose so much of the poetics. There've been attempts to communicate the poetics. And I know Robert Alter's recent translation of uh, mm -hmm. the Tanakh of the old Testament is um, uh, an example of that, where he's really trying in English to convey uh, the artistry of the Hebrew text. And that's a, that's a tough task. Obviously you can't communicate it one-to-one. -one, so what you have to do is basically write an artful English, I actually think the King James does a really good job at hmm. being artful and kind of filling a kind of, you know, there, there's an artistry in the composition of the King James. That's beautiful. I'm not saying it's, it's the best translation. Actually the NIV's use of the Psalter, since that's the topic of this conversation, the NIV's translation of the Psalter, I think is quite good. And one of the better of the modern translations of the Psalter, but here's an example, you know, Psalm one, right away, you start off in the Psalter, Right away, the Psalms throws you for a loop because, as Dr. Lee mentioned, Hebrew poetry is is marked by these parallel lines. Uh, usually, there's two parallel lines, and what we see here at the beginning of Psalm one is actually um, a really weird line that doesn't make sense. You know, it starts off with "Blessed is the man," and then uh, that seems to be the first line, 
And then it's followed up now by three follow-ups that even our ESV translators, I'm looking at the ESV, ESV right now, uh, when they're scansing or they're indenting the line of the poetry, they kind of get a little bit wrong. So blessed is the man who walks in the counsel of the wicked, uh, who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of the sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. So you have an opening line, uh, uh, which is Hebrew, blessed is the man. Right, which by the way you can hear the con- the, the, mm-hmm. the 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 similar sounds asha and ra ashrei, which is blessed or happy, haish, that's the man, asher who is, okay, blessed or happy is the man who is. But then you have these three kind of follow ups. So that that first line sets up what's happening, and then you have three lines that finish the line. Right. And they're kind of syntactically dependent on each other. That's very, that's very weird. You don't see a lot of lines like that in poetry, that kind of beatitudinal, uh, you know, genre there of blessed is or happy is. Um, so right away you have both this similar sounds, you have this kind of rhythm of a short line, blessed is the man. And then the three follow-ups, you have a kind of parallelism, but it's not a, it's not a two line parallelism. It's one, then three. So it almost creates a kind of quatrain. I remember sitting down with one of our profs and uh, asking him about, uh, we, we, he was, we were just discussing um, Hebrew poetry and I brought up Psalm one, one. And it's funny because that was the first line that we were talking about. And he said, yeah, that is a bit of an outlier, isn't it? You know, and right away the, the book opens with an outlier. That opens with a weird line. And that's why I think to your point about trying to really map out with great precision, like what exactly is Hebrew poetry is always going to fail because you've got to have a certain range for creative play. And that's part of what poetry does. It strikes me that often when we're trying to define something, the very nature of something we end up in, you know, risky territory. Um, I'm cognizant of about to walk into hermeneutics class. And I think the first thing on my agenda is to define the sentence. And uh, we, we look at that and we kind of think of what is a sentence? Um, and we end up with, well, we don't really know, but you know it when you see it, yeah. you know, and, and, and so often you kind of feel like you're in one of these territories, but you've got these big concepts that kind of help direct, okay, this is what's unique. Even if I'm, I've got some outliers, I've got some weirdness. This is what's unique here, and this is the point. This is what this is how it engages us. And I kind of look back at that uh, Scott and Peter some of your early definitions there, like terseness, rhythm, getting the whole body in motion. And I think about the some of the things that song does for us, and how poetry is just easily translatable into song. All of these kinds of things. And I'm wondering, as a reader, yeah, as a, we're doing these readers' guides, right? So, like, as a reader, as I appropriate poetry, what am I going for? And, and, I, and I look at so much of how poetry is used or how the Psalms are used in our tradition, and it seems like so often we get off the wrong foot that with what I'm going for, what I'm searching for is, like, mining the Psalms for theology. But there seems to be something bigger going on. Like it is actually trying to get me to engage with the experience and presence of God in a unique way Mm -hmm. and using this artful, poetic, terse form. I mean, as Gray said earlier, the Psalms are a mirror for the soul. Um, I don't know, Gray, if you want to reflect on that a bit. 
Did, did, in, t- in terms of the purpose really say of, the, that, of, of the Psalms. I, I think somebody else said that, and I think you know who it is, Tommy. <laughs> because every Reformed preacher who's ever preached on the Psalms would know who said that. And I'll leave that for the uh, discernment of the listener. Okay. Well, but, but I will say, <laughs> the danger of the preacher... Gray is or, putting down his paintbrush because he's painting right now. Right? That's right. A kind of pastoral scene. <laughs> Uh, a pastoral he's meditating scene. on the yeah. psalms as the uh that's right let, of the soul. let the listener understand well um, but like in all serious like this engagement with the whole body and stuff like the that, whole right? body and and but there's, there's the danger of the preacher is that temptation of like reducing the form of the structure and the, the literary style of the yeah. text to three points or five propositions that you're gonna droll out right so there's a sort of abstraction from the actual text itself and so when we're thinking about preaching, how do we not only convey the theological message of the contents of the verses that you're preaching from, but also convey the same sort of effect yeah. um, of the form that, that is supposed to convey, right? Uh, same thing with narr- narrations and narratives. When you're preaching a narrative, you can sort of flatten out the story and not feel the climax of the story. So it is with the Psalms. The risk is, oh, here's a wonderful psalm about lamentation or praise. Yeah. And yet the audience just, or the congregation just feels like, Oh, it's just another theological lesson with yeah. no difference from any other form of literary genre that you're looking at. Which especially that that artistic, that's this the the idea of song, the form actually contributes to this kind of experience, this this kind of moment that's that's very that can be even if it's this even if the song or the psalm itself, the poetry itself is abstracted from any particular experience. I, I can suddenly live that way. It's, it strikes me, you know, Peter, you started out with the difference. It's not prose. Well, we and 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 Scott, you use the example of of Judges five and the the different ways in which that same story is told. And my head went straight to Psalm fifty one, where David confesses, and the ESV, you know, subtitles. This is David's on, on upon David's um, sin with Bathsheba. But you read the psalm and Bathsheba is nowhere mentioned and the details are not, you know, the sordid details are not brought forward. It, it's, you could approach it as this abstracted uh, confession, of, confession of sin. Why is it written that way? Um, the terseness, the poetic form of it, the imagery all contributes to the fact that we have a very personal experience of David, but now something that everyone can sing, that everyone can participate in, that it becomes this moment of engagement for me as I confess whatever my sin is before the Lord. And if it had those kind of that specifics that extended, it lacked that terseness, it wouldn't have that, it wouldn't be able to be used in that way. Yeah, so so it gives you a sort of guidance of how to deal with particular sins, but also how to deal with particular affection. I think that um, the Psalms is a good antidote to what we may call, and the culture may call, toxic positivity. That if you're a mm. Christian, you need to be happy all the time. Like, hey man, like just think about God, and you should be happy. You should never be sad. Things like that. Well, the Psalm, the Psalms remind you that sadness, grief, lamentation are okay, and you're not sinning when you do these things. Right? We are not sinning when you complain unto the Lord. Yeah. As long as you bring it to him and as long as you direct your attention to him, right? And in a way, they actually make you sad. They, yeah, they do. They make they force you, you confess. They force you to, 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 to get kind into of, the well, mood. Yeah. yeah, there's. I mean, I think, so not to harp on the definition of poetry for too long, but it is a fascinating <laughs> topic. 
I think that actually gets at this kind of broader overarching thing that poetry does, which is, and this kind of gets at the affect side of it, the affective side, poetry done well, well composed poetry has you experience Mm -hmm. the event anew. Mm -hmm. And the way it often does that is through, I mean, all these things we've been talking about, whether it's meter or symbolism or poetic diction or weird lines, all of those things, what is it doing? It's, it's making you pause in a way that prose doesn't, you know, poetry doesn't just say things like I walked down the road and then I saw a cat and then I walked you know, whatever. It's, it's not, it's not usually spoken in plain way. It's spoken in a way that makes you have to kind of work for it. Okay? Mm-hmm. There's this idea that's, uh, it comes out of the modern age, but you actually see it back with Aristotle as well. This idea of it make that poetry makes things strange to us so mm-hmm. that as we experience it in the poem or in the verse, we're experiencing it as if for the first time. Mm-hmm. And I think that gets at so much of what the Psalter is doing. You know, if, if you look at a systematic theology and you go back to the scripture index and you're going to find mostly gospels and Paul, Mm-hmm. But when you look in the Old Testament, it's all going to be coming out of the Psalms. So it's interesting mm-hmm. how much the Psalms is a mine of theological content. And yet we're missing the fact that often the way those ideas are conveyed are in a way that are, are very strange. Mm-hmm. You know, it's weird. I mean, it's Psalm 51 is a good example because there's so much going on there that is is not clearly referencing the historic event and yet there are these kind of like subtle hints at it mm-hmm. these little, little reminders you know take not your holy spirit from me and then we're reminded kind of of, of Saul who the spirit of the lord is taken from when he abdicates the mm-hmm. throne and then right after that in psalm 51 uh David seems to be citing this is the interesting thing where he's talking about how you have no pleasure and sacrifices, he seems to be citing what Samuel said to Saul back in First Samuel. Excuse me, not to Saul. What Samuel said to Saul back in First Samuel fifteen. It's it's this very interesting kind of experiential, subjective understanding of the theology that's being taught hmm. in the Saul to David transition. Right. It's it's a very kind of. Uh, it makes you almost experience the whole story anew. You can see David kind of in his prayers, experiencing these things afresh and, and helping us to do that too. I think if a Christian just prayed through the Psalms, they'd be surprised at the range of emotions mm-hmm. and experiences that the Psalter authorizes in the Christian life. Right. And you think you compare these, the content of these Psalms to say modern day songs and you realize there's there's wonderful hymns that we sing in the modern period now, you know, that, that reflect upon redemptive history, the, the sovereignty of God and the power of his grace and things like that. But the Psalms actually capture a, a wider range of emotions than our modern hymns. And so we lose something, too, when we don't sing these Psalms as they were intended to be sung. And, you know, they force you to really contemplate about affections that you don't normally feel either. And you, you, when you mm-hmm. it causes you to be patient with others when you see Christians yeah. who struggle with these things showing that they're actually not sinning when they go through these things. You know, I'm so comforted by the fact that Psalm 77 is in there, which talks about, you know, someone facing insomnia as a, a believer in the Lord, right? Yeah. Uh, Psalm 88, the darkness is my friend. That's how it closes. Psalm 90, talking about death and your finitude, that your years are like a sigh, right? Mm-hmm. All of these amazing uh, texts you wouldn't think actually comes from a mature believer. And yet here is a psalmist speaking in this way. So your conception of what it looks like for a Christian might be radically different. Um, if you if you haven't experienced these things, you will. 
and you'll be patient when you come across these people because you've come across them in the Psalms. I think, you know, another thing that the Psalms do, you, you mentioned insomnia with Psalm 77. I, I actually thought of it, in, I've always read it in terms of like that anxiety, which produces insomnia. insomnia yeah. and, and regardless of like sort of a grammatical, historical analysis of that Psalm, one of the things that poetry does precisely in its terseness and use of imagery is it opens up a wider interpretive grid to map yourself on mm-hmm. the experience of the psalmist. So I was thinking about this recently because I was I'm working through the psalms in my own personal reading and how many of those early psalms are about warfare, about David being run down, run run over by actual enemies. And this is not mapping with my experience here at RTS. Y'all are all really friendly <laughs> and kind people. Just you um, wait, Tom. No, okay. I'm joking. Well, I'm I joking. do have my eye on you. All right. But thieves uh, and bandits surround right. me. That's right. But and like like these are actual thieves and ba- thieves and bandits, right? And my instinct is to spiritualize that song. To okay, well, who are my enemies? My enemy is sin and temptation and the you know oftentimes the the kind of the cares of this present world and all, all of those kinds of things and so i'm i'm reading the psalm i'm trying to apply it to myself and the grammatical historical side of me wants to see this as a king running from his enemies but the poetic artistic side wants me to see hey the, your your enemies aren't the same kind of enemies but this is the same experience and the lord is a fortress there too mm-hmm. uh, a, you know a, a mighty fortress um in a world with devils filled. And I, and I can start to think about that. And poetry, I, I think, and you tell me, brothers, whether I'm off base here, legitimizes that hermeneutical yeah. process. I, I haven't sinned in this same way, but I sin. And so David's psalm is now a song that I can sing. Yeah, I, you see, I guess this is why, this is why I love the psalms and, and just the the uh, the poetic parts of scripture in general. Uh, this is also the reason why uh, when you try to teach a class on the Psalms and wisdom literature, it mm-hmm. becomes just the Psalms uh, because you can't really get past just the, the, the artistry of poetry and move on to the actual book of Psalms because there's so much in there alone. As we're demonstrating right now. As we're demonstrating now. This is yeah. part of the reason why this is sort of an intimidating thing. You see, how, how do we do this in a way that is um, uh, in in an hour-long discussion that is going to do the subject justice? And and it's almost impossible because everything you're saying, I think, is totally true. I, I, I uh, The... It, it always surprises me, the first-person perspective of the psalm and how the psalmist is so introspective and sees such lament and sorrow and grief and how we live in a community, you know, now in post-COVID more than perhaps in the past where people are really struggling with that as well. You mentioned, Tommy, how, you know, sometimes it's, ca- uh, well, I don't know if it causes the lamenting. What it oftentimes does is the psalms gives kind of articulation to stuff that we feel that we don't know how to mm-hmm. you know express necessarily it's sort of the the groanings that we have in and how the spirit groans for us as paul mm-hmm. says it's almost like that in the psalms it's now putting words and substance to what we are sensing and, yeah and it, and it and it and now it's a it's a song it's a prayer that we can lift up and now we can pray through something that we couldn't pray through before yeah mm. 
I think what I meant in terms of like makes you lament is, you know, sometimes I don't feel like I'm in that place. Like I'm not feeling sad, but a good song, what it does in it lamenting connects me to experiences maybe that I haven't really done a deep dive into or really haven't thought about, you know, or tried to ignore, you know, the fact that my kids are getting older or this yeah. or, or this or that. And a good, a good song, good poetry brings me into that moment and allows me then to explore and project. And I think that's important as well. The, uh, I think Gray was mentioning how, you know, by reading poetry, it allows us to to window into our soul. A window into yeah. our soul, absolutely. As you know, Calvin also says, and he's not as well known for this, is there is a certain aspect of our 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 doctrine of humanity that the Psalms is able to celebrate hmm. um, that is oftentimes ignored. Like for example, he says, you know, if if God was only interested as an analogy to let's say our our health, uh, if if God was only interested in our health, and all we'd have is like tofu and lentil beans and vegetables and that's all we would have but you know the lord provided you know well he, i don't think he used these examples i can't i can't recall what he used but you know we've got ice cream and you know steak and lobster and things that allows us to kind of uh, celebrate our, our humanity with with the same sort of theocentric aspect you know we thank god for all this hmm. but you know the the psalms allows us to kind of celebrate the lord in the same way um, but through a different aesthetic. If if the Lord was only interested in data only, then all we would have is essentially Pauline epistle-like stuff, and that's all the scriptures would be. But that's not all that it is, that we actually have the Book of Psalms, we have wisdom, we've got, you know, uh, the Song of Songs, we have the, the uh, hymnic... Uh, you know, lament uh, poetic aspects of the of the of the uh, prophets, which like a third of the prophets, right, Scott, is like written in poetry. Yeah. I mean, it's crazy how much poetry actually there is in uh, in the Bible, and uh, and and we have this tendency to, you know, I think our Reformed tradition is sort of uh, 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 causes us to think like that the Bible is sort of written like a like a dictionary, like an encyclopedia. So if you want to know what the Bible says about God, you just look under G. Or mm -hmm. if you want to know what the Bible says about marriage, you look under M. Or like a scholastic handbook. Which is good. And I think it's definitely, you know, a good tool to have. But, we distinguish. Mm -hmm. But that's not necessarily what we have in the scriptures. We have, you know, things that celebrate marriage or aesthetics, you know, in, mm -hmm. in a mm -hmm. very different way. Yep. And, and yet still, this is divinely inspired. And and uh, for that reason, it seems worthy of, of, of sensitivity to the fact that the Lord gave us his word by using this medium. And yeah, and he gave us bodies, which feel, right? Mm -hmm. And I think one of the best readings on this is B.B. Warfield's The Emotional Life of Our Lord, which goes through the emotional range of Jesus's life. <laughs> and uh, I want to bring up a probably a potentially controversial question. There's a philosophical issue that tends to this too, right? If grief if sadness as shown in the life of the lord and also in the psalms is actually not sinful there's the philosophical question of whether or not there will be sadness in heaven now clearly there will be no weeping in heaven there will be no suffering in heaven there will be no death in heaven but there's the philosophical question of how can there be utter joy in heaven in the lord when you know that some of your loved ones are not there when you know that you've encountered death and pain and suffering in the past right 
Is there a way in which, therefore, even in the heavenly places, even in the new heavens and new earth, you will still feel the whole range of non-sinful emotions? Be angry, yet do not sin, for example. Uh, can there be a sanctified sort of that, a consummated version of that? And I wonder if the Psalms is a source to say, and I'm not saying this in sort of any conclusive or dogmatic way, that there might be a sense in which heaven will display a full panoply of all of your emotions. Yeah, I, that's a great question. I, and it's one of those questions, when we talk about the new heavens and new earth, you have to always begin acknowledging that, you know, no eye has seen, no ear has heard, right? I mean, it's going to be like something that we can't, uh, you know, imagine or conjure up for ourselves. Okay, so starting with that footnote, as an aside, I think the scriptures do kind of lay open an idea of glory that includes lament. And and we don't have to struggle to imagine art, right? Mm-hmm. We don't have to work too hard or look too far to find art that is beautiful and yet has a hint of lament. Uh, a song that is uh, sublime and yet also has minor chords, right? Mm-hmm. You know? And I, I think we can come up with all kinds of analogies about that. And we want to be careful because again, we're going to be talking about a thing. We remember when we talked about the new heavens and new earth in the past, we talked about the fact that I really have no idea what it's going to be like to right. not have a body of sin nagging my every thought and an imperishable and body, an imperishable body. Right. Um, however, with that said, the Psalter will exist in the new heavens and new earth. God's word is forever. And um, that's why actually I, I, I quibble. I don't know if I've said this before. I, I quibble with, my favorite author's very popular phrase, almost as popular as the Psalms being the window to the soul, mm-hmm. which is Jared Tolkien's argument that uh, everything that is sad will become untrue. I, mm-hmm. I don't think that's right, actually. I think that actually gets rid of the glory of the Loss. stigmata on Christ. Yeah. <laughs> you know, right. I no, it won't become untrue. It'll become glorious. It'll become yeah. beautiful because of what it was. Right. It's not going to become untrue. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, the crucifixion will still have to have had it happened, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. It doesn't wipe away the pain; it glorifies it. It glorifies. Is- it becomes, and it also, in a way, and this is now now I'm kind of falling back into your field. You know, leaning a bit on on Plantinga's argument about Felix best, Culpa. Uh, well, best of all possible worlds, and this idea that that's even more glory mm-hmm. to know Christ and to know God in light of suffering and redemption. That's more glory to Him, not less. Which is a subtle argument, and this is just for the nerds, for superlapsarianism, of which okay. I am an avowed believer in. That was totally. I'm not. Gonna, I, yeah, well, the, the joke. This is this is the debate that's always brought up to talk to to actually. It's like the, it's the reformed version of angels dancing on the head of a needle. I know, and but, yet it but, does have some really interesting implications. Yeah, that, uh, and I'd I, argue that superlapsarianism provides an argument to the problem of evil, a potential answer to the problem of evil, which is what you're talking about there, mm-hmm. that, that God would rather permit evil to exist and to bring good out of evil rather than to permit no evil at all, which is very Augustinian. Mm-hmm. And I think that framework makes sense of superlapsarianism in terms of an answer to the problem of evil. And for those who are wondering what superlapsarianism even is, superlapsarianism just refers to the logical ordering of God's decrees, that God actually decreed redemption before the fall. Um, and infralapsarianism is sort of the opposite view that God ordered the decrees in such a way where the fall comes logically first and then redemption after the fall. 
But supralapsarianism says that redemption is the purpose for which God had created the world. And the fall is, was decreed for that end. Yeah, which is why John Gerstner has that great quote about Dort, you know, and he talks about the canons of Dort, the tulip, which yeah. of course begins with total depravity, begins with the fall. And he says, you know, the, That's in, in John Gerstner's growl, you know, tulip is an infralapsarian plant. Yeah. And, you know, because you know, he's <laughs> arguing that it's uh, that Dort was infralapsarian. But, with that said, that was a debate that was going on at Dort. That was right. that was being discussed at Dort. And, and 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 it doesn't mean that you reject Dort if you're super lapsarian either. No. Rather, it's it's just about this. And super lapsarian historically has always been the minority position because it yeah. sounds harsh at first. But I think there is something to it. You know, it's not as if when Tolkien wrote Lord of the Rings, he approves of Gollum's existence right. or the evil of the orcs and things like that. But he knows that. When he weaves it into a larger whole, there's a beauty yeah. of to the story in the larger. I, I would whole. say everything. This this coming back to this idea of poetry and you know giving voice to our experience and filling our imaginarium, giving us language for these experiences. It conforms us. What what does the Psalter do? It conforms us to this drama mm-hmm. uh, that is expressed therein. And gives us ways of thinking about and understanding these experiences. How do I worship God in times of plenty? How do I worship him in times of loss? Mm -hmm. And it it helps me, even even Psalm 88, which you mentioned earlier, which ends with, I am, you know, darkness is my friend. Mm -hmm. You know, what is he still doing? He's still calling out to the Lord. And he's saying, there's going to be times where you're going to just be calling out to the Lord because that's all you've got. And that's, that's okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and and to your initial point, Gray, that it also gives you your your point about heaven and can we sing a lament in heaven? The Psalms are able to do that and to bring us into those stories and those experiences, even when we're not experiencing them. Right. We're not experiencing them in the same way. And I and I think about as, as long as we're quoting our favorite mentors and <laughs> uh, today, you know, Ed Clowney argued that all of the psalms are messianic psalms in the sense that all of the psalms are psalms the savior sings well how can jesus sing a psalm of confession how can mm. he sing psalm 51 well because he takes on the sin of the world and brings it before the father how can jesus knowing the joy that is set before him sing a psalm of lament well because he knows that it he is going to endure the cross and glory doesn't mean that that pain isn't real pain or that um, that lament isn't genuine lament. And, you know, to your point, Scott, he still bears the scars in heaven, but he's got his new glorified body. You should have no imperfections on your new glorified body. Well, those scars are now scars of glory. Mm-hmm. They're 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 purple hearts. You know, they're they're signs of the victory that God has acquired over sin and death, and that will be remembered for eternity yeah. and we will yeah. rejoice in that even as we sing a lament we sing it rejoicing in the glory that god has brought out of it mm-hmm. okay gentle readers as as we expected <laughs> this, this is too big of a topic uh as, as bart says about john calvin the topic of the psalms is is a himalaya it's it's uh, it's demonic in its size um and so we have uh, touched on the opening issues that we have to address, which is what's the nature of poetry? How does it work? How does it inform our theology and our Christian life or theology of the Christian life? Um, and yet we haven't really dived yet into the 
canonical Psalter itself. We've touched on a few things as examples, but we're going to actually treat this as a two-parter. So this is going to be part one, which will be an introduction to the Psalms. And by the way, everything that we've said here is also true of that poetry that you find in Proverbs and Job, as well as the prophets, and um, and in different parts in set in uh, those prose historical books that we have, starting in Genesis and going all the way up to Kings. So there's a lot in here to talk about, but we're going to come back next week and we're going to talk more about now the actual book of the Psalms, how it's constructed, how you can read it, ways of approaching it devotionally and interpretationally, because as you can imagine, there's a whole history um, of interpretation about the Psalms. It's one of the most studied books of the life of the Bible. And so we're going to come back and discuss that a little bit further. So thanks folks for being a part of this conversation. It's always great. It's always a benefit to me. And Gray, you got to quote John Calvin Mm -hmm. about the Psalms being the window of the soul, which was his one desideratum as we were coming into this episode. Um, so Thanks with, for that. Y- yeah. Hey. Thank you. It warmed my soul. <laughs> you know, we want the young guys to. You feel know, there's like, a psalm about that. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> we want the young scholars to feel accepted, so they can bring in their own. You know, and I felt I felt very much Good. validated today. Good. Um, it's been great talking. Look forward to being a part of this conversation next week. Until then, take care. Should this be a two-parter? Because we ha- have we talked about the Book of Psalms yet? Well, I think <laughs> <laughs> we we this is a nice little intro of why you should read it and yeah. the whole range of the Psalms, I guess. Yeah, and then you can do specific. well. There's, there's messianic t- Psalms. There's also something yeah like that. to Psalm types books. Well, like I just to jot it down with things we didn't get to anything that I thought we were going to get to. <laughs> Let's do this two-parter. This was all this was preparatory, right? This is a preparatory or like Psalm Part One.